0: And I think that to me has always been the most fascinating part of medical practice from, you know, patient care standpoint, but also from my interest in ethics and, and writing is, you know, what constitutes a good life and how can, how do we define what a good life means all the way up to taking our last breath? And for each of us individually, where is that dividing line faint as it might be sometimes between prolonging our lives and prolonging our deaths
1: hello friends welcome to grief is a sneaky Bitch podcast i'm your host lisa keefoffer and in case you're new to the show yes this is a podcast all about grief my guests and i explore the expansiveness and well pervasiveness of grief in our lives because Let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time and I'm so glad you're joining me. I'm thrilled to be sharing my conversation, the one I had last fall with palliative medicine, Dr. Sunita Puri, the author of the incredible book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. It's a literary memoir examining her journey to the practice of palliative medicine and her quest to help patients and families redefine what it means to live and die well in the face of serious illness. In 2022, she also became the new Program Director of the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center and Chan School of Medicine, where she's also a new Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine. A note for those who aren't familiar with palliative medicine, unlike the notion that's commonly held, palliative care isn't limited to end of life. It's care that's available to patients and their families at any time during an illness. It works in conjunction with traditional medical intervention and focuses on reducing the emotional, psychological, spiritual, and of course, physical suffering of the patient, either as a result of the disease or of the treatment. Other guests I've had on the show who explored aspects of this topic include the episodes with Dr. BJ Miller and social workers Rachel Rush and Rachel Carnahan Metzger. But in this episode, just like in her writing, and her practice as a palliative physician, Sunita brings so much wisdom, warmth, and insight to our conversation. I can't wait for you to meet her. Sunita, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. As you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, ever since I devoured your book, That Good Night. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's really wonderful to be able to talk to you today.
1: Well, my listeners just heard, of course, a little bit about your work, about your writing in this book, That Good Night. And of course, they heard my sort of fangirling. And anybody who's followed me on social media for these past few months already knows that I've been giving a shout out to your book. So today we're going to explore all things um, that you explored in the book around palliative medicine, around storytelling, around spirituality bearing witness but I want to start today's conversation where I start um, with all of my guests and really opening, inviting people to sort of take a look at their the origin of their grief beliefs so I wondered if you'd could recall an early memory of loss or grief and what or how were the adults in your life sort of modeling what grief looked like you know sort of for better or for worse but maybe an early loss and
0: how were people showing up for that? What a great question, Lisa. Honestly, nobody has ever asked me that. And I think that is such a huge, important question. So, you know, one of the earliest losses in my life was actually the loss of my first cat. And that might sound trivial to some because it's not, it wasn't the loss of a human that I, it, experienced first, but this cat was really the center of my universe. And I had adopted him from neighbors before we moved out to California when I was five years old. And his name was Basil. And Basil was just my absolute best friend. I took him to my first grade class for show and tell. I, you know, wherever I went in the house, he followed. He was just content to let me as a child be with him in whatever way I needed to be with him. And when I was seven, he started to experience some jaundice. He started to kind of turn yellow and we didn't know what was going on. And one night I took him to the vet with my dad. And I know now that when he was in my arms, he was actively dying. And I was just watching him breathe. And we were saying prayers in Sanskrit together, my dad and I. And when I got to the vet, you know, my dad asked me to sit in the waiting room. And when he came out, he said the vet told him that Basil just needed to be here for a few weeks. And obviously (sighs) weeks and weeks passed and Basil never came home. And... Obviously, I figured it out that he had died. And what was so hard for me at the time, but also now thinking back about it, was just that there was really no discussion about the fact that he died. He had been cremated. I didn't know that. And the kind of anger I felt amid the grief of losing him, but the anger about not ever having talked about his death, or talked about the fact that the vet knew when he first saw Basil that he was going to die that night, and actually died about 15 minutes or so before after we had left. There was just so much silence, and when I really needed love and support, and I needed others to mourn with me. And that, to me, was you know, the introduction in my family to how we talked about loss of, of people close to us or beings close to us, even though I'd grown up in a tradition that very much kind of embraced death and temporality as natural parts of human life. But that first experience with grief was really kind of demonstrated to me how no matter how open we could be about the fact of death philosophically, emotionally that was kind of a different scenario in our family in terms of talking openly about death and loss and grief.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, such a beautiful story and not at all. First of all, all of us who are pet lovers understand there's nothing trivial about pet loss. But also, um, I think one of the things that you bring up, which, of course, is more common than I think we'd like to think about, which is sort of many of us come from families where in theories, whether it's because of a spiritual or religious tradition or just some other cultural background, we talk about, you know, the transient nature of our lives and death and, you know, sort of the circle of life. But when it push comes to shove, so many of us. Learn really from what isn't said, what isn't expressed. And so when I ask this question, I'm always curious for people to really unpack the implicit even more than the explicit, because that informs our beliefs and whether we sort of like them cognitively or not now as adults, it's shaped sort of how we show up in the world. And it sounds like, even though your family comes from this beautiful tradition, as you said, of sort of honoring you know, those aspects when push comes to shove, it's it's a challenge. And and I just want to say too, and I'm sure you I imagine you feel this way too. This isn't like, you know, oh my gosh, my parents did such a bad job. It just is uh making visible this thing that we need to all come to terms with so that we don't maybe continue that ourselves as parents.
0: Absolutely. And I love the what you said about what is explicitly stated and what is left unsaid because I think that dynamic plays out a lot in the hospital. And when my colleagues and I are talking to patients and families, so you're absolutely right that what is not said kind of creates its own force field, that everyone kind of knows it's there and it distorts everything that is said. So I think that's a really insightful point.
1: Yeah, thank you. And yeah, we're definitely going to touch on how this shows up um, in medical education and in practice. But just just to echo what you said, just kind of thinking, speaking to the listeners there is we want to be mindful of the noise of our silence, the sort of ripple effect of what we don't say, what we don't do when we don't show up, not as a... hmm, chance to beat ourselves up or to criticize other people, but just to bring awareness that, you know, the non-action and the non-voice is powerful. And then whatever you do say or do, as you said, is sort of, I don't use the word tainted, but is sort of influenced by that. Um, And which is why I do the work that I do. I call myself a grief activist. I'm really trying to have these, make these conversations so very explicit so that we can be so very conscious just like the journey you went through in your work with palliative medicine, which is so beautifully um, told in that good night so that we can sort of learn and show up in the world in ways that are actually more aligned with what we, you know, how we want to be in the world.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I wish you all, I'm not going to summarize her book. You just, trust me, you need to check the link in the bio and go pick up. It's called that good night life and medicine in the 11th hour. I loved the, I mean, besides you being a beautiful writer, I love how you weaved just kind of what we were talking about. Like what were the family influences on how you saw the world, spirituality, spirituality, excuse me, medicine, you know, the doctor's role. Your mom was a physician, if I recall correctly. Yes. So, so I wonder, it's always hard. Of course, there's the the detail in the journey of medical school is long and arduous. I know. But can you tell me a little bit, thinking back to those early years, sort of what you learned, again, explicitly or implicitly about grief or loss or not, by the way, in medical school, and a little bit about how that came into be, how you ended up moving into palliative as a field? Because, of course, all of those conversations and those topics are are inter- interrelated. But
0: what, what did you...
1: Learn looking back in medical school about grief and loss sort of prior to any palliative rotation
0: that you did? So very, very little. Um, I remember in my first year of medical school, we were in a small group session and a really wonderful geriatrician had us all go around the room and think to ourselves about what like what experiences we had personally had with death. And all of us went around the room and described um, the situations that had come up in our lives. But that was really, from what I remember, the only session in my years of medical school where we talked about death, dying, grief, loss, anything like that and all of those topics predominantly really just how we think about dying ourselves that was really the focus of that group and I definitely did not get any formal instruction on grief or loss or how to talk to people about those topics um, through not only throughout my medical school training but even in my residency training. So, you know, I went into palliative care fellowship with an affinity for these topics, but no real formal consistent instruction. And, you know, in my training, I always really gravitated towards the why. For example, in the book I wrote about being the medicine resident in the ICU and taking care of a patient who'd come in for a routine surgery, but who developed failure of his lungs for some reason afterwards. And he ended up on a ventilator and eventually on dialysis with his lungs, his heart, and his kidneys failing. And he was my patient. And I just remember doing so many things to him, but wondering what I was really doing for him. Mm. It was like, you know, okay, his kidneys are failing. Now I'm going to put in a dialysis catheter. And I remember that moment of thinking, I don't really know why I'm doing this. And I actually asked a colleague if they would want to place the line instead of me, because I just felt like it was wrong. But on rounds, when we would talk about him, we were never really talking about the bigger picture and where all of this treatment was potentially going to take him and whether that destination would be the quality of life he'd want for himself. And so when we finally started talking to the family about this, it became very clear that he would not want not really his life prolonged in this way. He wouldn't want his death prolonged in this way. And I think that to me has always been the most fascinating part of medical practice from, you know, patient care standpoint, but also from my interest in ethics and and writing is, you know, what constitutes a good life and how can, how do we define what a good life means all the way up to taking our last breath. And for each of us individually, where is that dividing line faint as it might be sometimes between prolonging our lives and prolonging our deaths? And I think that is, you know, the beauty of medical technology is that we really can rescue people sometimes from the maws of death, but we can also go into that tricky territory of just prolonging the inevitable. Yeah. And I was very interested in palliative because I just felt like I was being the best doctor I could be when I was treating people's symptoms, helping them to feel better, for example, from cancer pain or shortness of breath from heart failure. And also when I was sitting there with them and their families having these very kind of intimate, vulnerable conversations about these topics.
1: You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Sunita shares how her mother, who was also a physician, shared stories of the spirituality and strong ethical stance she brought to her own medical practice. I asked her to reflect on how that impacts her own work in palliative medicine and what differences she's seeing in her career. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind-the-scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading? Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the Not-So-Regular newsletter today by visiting lisakeefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K E E. F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin, Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief-smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note visit com. I think I'm so, that's why I think I'm always so drawn to palliative physicians and social workers and nurses, because you do, it seems, inherently have this interest in um, doing what you can medically, of course, to support people and to reduce their suffering, but also Asking these really important why questions and even asking the questions, what does a good life mean to you specifically? That's so profound. Had those been conversations you ever had? I can't remember what type of physician your mom was, but when you ended up in the palliative field, what felt different to you or what surprised you based on sort of the trajectory of your mom's role in medicine versus you showing up in these very unique spaces of of having these conversations in palliative,
0: so my mother's an anesthesiologist, and so she, but you know, even though she does kind of practice in settings where we are generally focused on, for example, keeping someone well through surgery so that their problem can be fixed. She's also somebody who was very spiritual. So she would, for example, pray with her patients before taking them to the operating room. Before she started cases, she would pray to God to help her do her best job for her patients and keep them safe. And so she was in a field that was very much focused on the high potential for cure. And, I think to her, these questions were always really important because she would, as I wrote about in the book, she would have these conversations with me while she was like braiding my hair before me going to, you know, fourth grade, she would be telling me about, you know, cases where someone wanted to take a very sick 90 year old to the operating room and she, you know. Would wonder, why are we doing this? Like, I'm not going to anesthetize this person because that could kill them. And this is somebody who has no quality of life. Why would we do this to them? So she would say these things aloud, I think trying to work through them in her own mind and had a very kind of strong ethical stance about who should and should not go to the operating room based on the likelihood that they would recover to some decent quality of life without too much suffering. And these were the questions that I, you know, began to ask myself in my residency. And I think these are really the core questions of medicine, that medicine isn't here For the purpose of curing everything and extending life at all costs even though we're very much socialized to believe that's our job to believe that being a doctor is being a hero in a very specific quote-unquote life-saving sort of way and even though my mom was puzzled about why i would become a doctor only to specialize in palliative care I think once I could show her that there's such continuity between her questions in her own very different practice and the questions I ask myself, those are the questions fundamental, I I believe, to being a good doctor. And so there was that continuity despite the very different paths we took.
1: Well, that's such a, I really appreciate the way you weave together sort of that thread, that through line really of the kind of um, different conversations that you had had, um, or the conversation she had with you growing up, and and how you were able to sort of see that through line or that similarity um, in the work you do. And it does seem like so there was an example of very explicit conversations she would have with you, not necessarily telling you, you know, when you become when you grow up and become a doctor, make sure you think or do these things with your patients, but by her modeling her own. Um, kind of questioning her own concerns, her own actions, and her work that spoke volumes, it sounds like, to you in terms of how you felt more or less prepared to tackle those same questions as you moved into medicine. So I love that. Shout out to mom for offering you that. I know you also had conversations with your dad. He was not a physician, I don't believe, but had conversations on, on mortality, on, on spirituality. What, what do you think those conversations or how did, or do those conversations inform how you show up when you're having these conversations with patients and families, even when you're thinking about broaching subject of, you know, death, anticipatory grief, acknowledging maybe that their quality of life will be less and whatever loss or grief comes with that. But what, what do you think has informed how you show up based on those conversations you had with your dad?
0: Well, I think a lot of it is kind of what I talked about earlier, that in our spiritual tradition, and my dad would read to, the, uh, to me from the Bhagavad Gita when I was very young, is he really wanted to equip me with this understanding that not only do all things, you know, pass on or die, but everything ultimately changes. And change is just the only constant in life. And it's not just that our bodies will change and we will grow old and die. It's that our relationships will change to others. Our relationship to ourselves will change. And something that I talk about a lot with my patients is this concept of impermanence and change. That where they are now with their disease will be very different than where they're with their disease month from now, six months from now. And so how do we help them adapt to change, regardless of whether it's getting results that the cancer has receded a bit, or getting results that it stayed the same, or getting results that it has now grown? How how can we help them draw upon the ways they've dealt with change before to help them navigate change now and to help them see really that wherever they are now is not where they're going to stay. And that could be a good thing if they're in the throes of great suffering from cancer pain. It could also be a bad thing or a hard thing if they're good right now but we know that the disease is going to evolve and the pain will return. So I use that concept of change and impermanence, sometimes not really explicitly with my patients, but certainly it is a part of the through line of our conversations. And I, you know, that's very much coming from my dad and our talks throughout my life about this subject.
1: So beautiful. And I love those, those words together, change and impermanence. And I think, you know, part of how I think about why grief can show up so differently than this sort of dangerous single story we have in Western culture about grief being very linear and neat and, you know, tidy and only around death is that we are constantly experiencing change. And so how can we hold that to be true and mourn the losses or the impending losses while also, um, you know, acknowledging that there are, you know, there might be beauty or awe or wonder around the corner that we just can't see yet. Not in that toxic positivity way, but sort of just in the power of holding the both and. And as, as a physician, it sounds like you're sort of doing that for those people, sort of naming the normalcy of change and maybe whatever discomforting or uncomfortable feelings come up for that while also sort of accompanying them to um, maybe this space of understanding that it might feel like less suffering in a month from now or a year from now and to just hold that space for them. I wonder.
0: Yes. You know, I think that that is kind of accompaniment is a big part of what, I do in my work. I also think it's a big part of what many physicians, regardless of specialty, do because we are seeing the evolution of chronic diseases. For example, um, when somebody goes to their primary care doctor, um, if they are diabetic and have high blood pressure, you know, the primary care doctor is going to do things medically to try to contain those things. But also, I would like to believe emotionally accompanying someone through the ups and downs of that journey. And I think that's something that we have lost in modern medicine is this yes. idea that before all of our medications and the evolution of surgery and childbirth and antibiotics, so much of what medicine was, was a healing art yeah. and healing is not the same as curing And I think in order to have a healing relationship between a doctor and a patient, that concept of accompaniment is a really important part of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, accompaniment is really such an integral part of, I mean, really, that's the best quality or or action that we can take as humans in general, not just if you're in the role of physician, but... It's sort of how I think about our role as someone who shows up in support of somebody in grief, which is while yes, it might be nice if there's something practical you could do to alleviate their suffering or some, you know, casserole you could bring or some chore that you can do that really our job of healing is to hold space and bear witness. So I'm wondering if you can think about this, this accompaniment, you know, this power of accompaniment, how did you start to think about what that looked like, what that felt like for you. I, I can, I'm i remembering a particular passage in the book that you talked about, um, someone you had looked up to who you felt did it really beautifully. I wonder if it would be too weird if I read you a little passage and just invited you to reflect on sort of how you came to um, accompaniment. Would that be all right if I read that to you?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So as I said, you were talking about a particular doctor um I think it's Dr. Nguyen is her name, Um, and just how much you admired the way she showed up and held space and accompanied the patients. And um, you offered this in, in That Good Night. You said, perhaps by adopting her expression and mannerisms, I thought I could also channel her presence with patients, but I couldn't sustain it no matter how many times I tried. Dr. Nguyen's spirit, loving, empathetic, and completely present, was inimitable. In trying to emulate her, I missed the most essential point she demonstrated. She was completely herself with her patients, not at all preoccupied with the performance of a specific stereotypical physician authority. As I watched Dr. Nguyen speak with patients, I felt certain parts of myself, frozen in the long hibernation of residency, thaw and reemerge like blades of grass through melting snow. Hmm. One of the many passages in your book I have highlighted, but I think the reason I wanted to draw that out and have you share a little bit more about your own, oh, well, you did sort of thaw out and discover your own way of showing up is, I think this happens so often again, when when I have folks showing, asking me, what do I say? How do I act? How do I show up? Looking for some specific formula or phrase or expression, you know, some one right action to be the best grief supporter. And of course it comes from a good place, but just to the exactly what you said there, which is maybe there are some guiding principles, but at the end of the day, showing up with your most present authentic self so that you can accompany is it. And it's just not a very neat in the box answer, you know? Um, but so can you tell us a little bit about that particular passage, but just sort of then how you came to show up in your own way and what does, what does that look like? How would you describe that?
0: Certainly. So thank you for reading that passage. I, um, uh, Dr. Wynn is a pseudonym, but okay. um, the person who, exists behind that pseudonym, I really believe made played an enormous role in how I practice palliative care. So, you know, I think that especially when someone's grieving, we all want, those of us who feel comfortable enough to really get close to that field of grief, we really want to make sure we don't screw it up or make somebody feel worse. And I think sometimes when we are trying to be anything other than our authentic selves, that that can come through. And I think our friends or whoever we're talking to who's grieving, what a lot of people really need is for the people around them who they can turn to to show up as their familiar authentic selves, because in the throes of all the emotional chaos of grief, I think people really just want to know that the people around them as they were before are going to continue to be with them, even if they don't know what to say. And even if the best they can do is leave, um, casseroles on the porch. Um, but I think part of being authentic is also helping the person who's grieving be comfortable enough to tell you what they need. And that's a big piece of advice I generally give to people who are around someone who's grieving and who are uncomfortable and want to help, but don't want to be invasive and also don't want to be too distant or seem like they don't care. I sometimes tell them, you know, I think one of the best ways to deal with that situation is to tell the person that, you want to be of help and you just want them to tell you what they need. And I think that, and just being willing to be present and to listen in the way that is authentic to you. Those are some of the most powerful gifts we can give people who are grieving and choosing to see them rather than back away from them. I think is the other part of this. We have a horrible script around grief in this country. We talk about, time healing all wounds, or eventually you'll move on, or you'll look back at the good times someday.
1: They're in a better Um, place now.
0: They're in a better place. And I just think we say these platitudes because we don't know what else to say and because saying something truer, it it requires us to drop into painful experiences of our own. Saying things like, I thought it would get better, and there are days I do, I did feel better after a loss, but there were days where unpredictably I'd feel just as bad as the day he died. And having to say, trying to say that to relate to somebody who's grieving means us reliving the things about our own grief that were devastating. Yeah. And, you know, clinging to kind of the cycle, the, the stages of grief and why am I angry when I thought I had accepted this. That's another place where I think people get stuck is expecting grief to be linear when it's not. It's just kind of a chaotic mess a lot of the times and acknowledging that for the people who are grieving that, you know, I'll be here with you through the mess. I may not know how to show up for you, but I want to show up in a helpful way if, if you'll tell me what that looks like for you.
1: Yes, yes, and yes to all of those things. Um, and you're, of course, patients and their family members are experiencing, you know, sort of all forms of grief throughout their stay, even if this person ends up leaving the hospital live, whether it's anticipatory grief or ambiguous loss or sort of grief for the versions of themselves they were before the disease course took in or some ability or capacity. <laughs> When we come back, Sunitha shares what it looks like to accompany a patient when they're in the middle of their disease, perhaps when the outcome or prognosis isn't clear or certain. She explores the need for making space for all the complex emotions of these liminal spaces and for giving permission to let go of the myth of American grit. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch Podcast. so fortunate to have so many incredible guests coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. After the show, head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing the show with someone in your life need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Did you know you can now get all kinds of Grief Is A Sneaky Bitch merch from tees and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers? You can find it in my Grief Happens Shop. In fact, I love that people have started sharing their pictures with me. So if you pick something up, make sure to take a selfie and tag me on social media at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'll be adding new content to the shop monthly. Next up is a series of merchandise I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All The Way Off. Shop now for your own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast merch by visiting www.lisakefauver.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. What does accompaniment look like for you as you're showing up sort of with people who are, you know, mid-some experience where there isn't an obvious sort of outcome, you know, death loss showing up for somebody in grief after something finite or concrete like death loss is complex in its own right. But what does it look like showing up in those ways when, when people are sort of in the soup of it in the, in the midst of it?
0: So I think, you know, going through the process of incremental losses is a really hard thing, no matter what the loss is, whether it's the impending loss of a relationship or a life or your own life or that of someone you love. I think this is going to sound very simple, but I really think just choosing to listen and to help people to build a bond of trust so that people know that even just by listening I am there with them, even if I don't say anything immediately, just listening to them reflecting back what I hear and really kind of validating that, yes, it is horrific to think about living now with severe neuropathy from your chemo that prevents you from gardening or severe neuropathy that makes it so that you can't live safely in the house you've lived in for 30 years. And really just reflecting it back and acknowledging like this is not, this may not be the moment where you're choosing to go into hospice and having a different sort of grief, but all of this grief along the way, the losses along the way should be named in a supportive environment where you are going to be listened to. And validated. I think listening is a huge part of what it means to accompany someone. And I think just helping them to know that they're not alone in these experiences, that even though every loss, incremental loss is different for people in terms of the impact and how they experience it. I often will tell people like, you are far from my only patient who feels this way. I want you to know that this is A shared experience in different ways by everyone who sat here with me. And I just think giving people permission to feel all of that to the extent they feel ready to is a huge part of what it means to walk people to the riverbank. They need that permission, especially in a culture that shuts down strong emotion. And still to some extent, even though we share a lot on social media, perhaps overshare on social media, there's still this idea that they're of American grit of, of working your way through things and being given permission to step away from that narrative and to feel in a supportive space. That I think is a huge part of how I personally try to accompany people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So beautiful, uh, so in line with the kinds of conversations I have with my own clients and, of course, the conversations I've had with guests. And I think, to your point, this sort of um, validating, this sort of permission-giving or normalizing the complexity and the messiness of whatever the person's emotional lived experience is, and sort of listening without trying to fix immediately or correct – I think so many of us, it's so incredibly important. I mean, if I just, whenever I run workshops, I ask people, think of a time where someone, where you felt really seen in your pain, in your suffering. And almost never did anybody talk about some big sweeping action someone took or some grand gesture. It was the subtle, the listening, the nodding of the head, the mirroring back the words. Like it, we all know intuitively how powerful that is when we've been on the receiving end. And yet I think we just struggle with it because again, sort of culturally, it feels like, but we must need to do something bigger or bolder or more sort of concrete. I wonder when you were sort of early in your palliative training, did you have to stifle that instinct to sort of come into with a Sort of make it all better, kind of stance? Or did you find yourself settling quite easily and naturally into kind of holding those long, sometimes maybe awkward silences or holding the both and of people's pain? How, was that a struggle for you or did that kind of come easily in those early years?
0: So I think when I was learning in my fellowship training uh, to practice palliative medicine, It was a struggle because again, you know, I think in medicine, the fix it mindset is a very big part of our training. You diagnose the problem and you approach the fixing in a specific way. And so things like uncertainty about what to do and honoring silences instead of filling them up, those were things that I think I needed some time to really embrace and in the beginning of my fellowship training, I would notice that in when other doctors were talking, that sometimes I wished they would stop talking and just give everyone in the room a pause because of all the strong emotion running around. And then I started to experiment with that myself. And it took some time. And, but towards the end of my fellowship year, I really started to kind of understand that I was not there, nor can anyone be there to fix it all in unfixable situations. And I didn't, I no longer thought of an emotion as something to fix. I didn't want to kind of, you know, play this role of just trying to help people feel better and put a smile on their face. That was really not my role. My role was to witness while really respecting the boundary between my abilities and another person's natural processing of what they were going through. And I think that a lot of times we in medicine are very afraid of strong emotions, particularly sadness and crying. Um, I know this because I have at times had teams in the past at my prior job consult me because, believe it or not, The patient is crying,
1: and I think that's some bizarre outcome. From I
0: know, I mean, it it was shocking to me, and but I really think that we believe that if someone is crying or sad, that we we have to fix it. And I told that team, one of the several teams that has asked me for help around this in the past that I don't think there's anything I can do that you can't do as a human being. This is, crying is not a problem to fix. Crying is a natural human emotion that we should honor because this person really doesn't have long to live or really isn't going to do well. The surgery is hugely risky and it would be weird if they weren't grieving that. And so really kind of Unlearning what we learned in medicine, medical training to just fix everything, put a smile on someone's face, protect them from strong human emotions. I really came to see all of that as actually quite paternalistic. That, you know, why should I, why should I interpret my job as preventing another person from feeling sad or f- or feeling whatever they feel in the face of something that I have to be honest with them about. That is not my role. My role is to witness and to understand the difference between another person's human experience and my role as a doctor and my limits as a doctor.
1: Yeah, so beautifully said. I so appreciate that. I've had similar conversations, as I said, with palliative social workers. I can think of one who works in pediatrics, Rachel Han Metzger, and she had similar consult requests, particularly around when families were expressing anger, also a very normative response to grief and loss and to this change um, that's happening. And um, feeling like part of her work was really to work with other medical staff to sort of help Shed a light on like this isn't a pathology. You know, and there might be certain actions and behaviors that aren't acceptable, but um, that this isn't a pathology, both in our patients or ourselves, too. I think come to think about like what is the internal emotional work and responsibility of someone who works in medicine to come to terms with their own sort of array of emotional responses to things. Because I think. If we are seeing it as a pathology in others, how are we making space for and accompanying ourselves in whatever our losses are? I'm curious if even that kind of is something that was touched on in palliative training or something you think about as a responsibility in your work as a palliative doctor is sort of accompanying your own, the expanse of your emotions as it relates to either what you're witnessing as a professional or in your personal life, too.
0: Well, I think that certainly, again, now I am actually the director of a palliative care training program. That is my new role. And so as I'm teaching my fellows, a lot of what I talk to them about is what comes up for you during these encounters. And I don't just mean in terms of whether you're finding the right words for a conversation or not, but what is coming up for you as you witness what people are going through. And I think that is a really important part of our training in palliative care, but also I wish it were more a part of the training in medicine in general, because I think it is not being in touch with how we feel and how things affect us Kind of numbing those things out or thinking we don't have a right to explore those emotions, that we only should be focusing on the emotions of a patient. I think all of that results in burnout and depersonalization because we are human too. And I think this is something that medical education has long neglected is how do we bring our own humanity to bear on taking care of patients? And part of bringing our own humanity is being aware of how these encounters affect us. And that includes making space for rage and trauma and deep, deep sadness over losing a patient in a way that wasn't ideal or taking care of a patient whose situation brings up something from our past. And it doesn't mean that we all need to go to therapy or that we all need to have like an hour-long processing session about it. But I do think it means that we should be encouraging our trainees to think about what's coming up for them and to help them find ways to process what they're seeing and how they're feeling in a way that works for them. And I don't think that the same strategy works for everybody. I have a fellow now who's really excellent, but his way of processing things is very different from my way of processing things. And part of, I think, being a good program director and teacher is helping people to understand that their unique way of processing is also okay, as long as they feel like they are really... Going inwards to understand what they're feeling and to reach out to talk to me or to somebody else if they're having trouble managing how what's coming up for them. And I think we all really need to be respectful of how people choose to care for their emotions. Um, I've never, for example, been a fan of forcing palliative care fellows to go to therapy. I just don't think that that's everybody's way. And I think we need to be respectful of that too.
1: No, I appreciate um, your acknowledgement that of the importance that we all kind of don't hide from or sort of shoo away, whatever it is, is our own emotional response to the situation or to observing the emotionality of other people. But, and at the same time, recognizing that just like the other things we were talking about today, there's no one right method, no one right way. And yet we can't do the work unless we ask ourselves the question or in your case, unless we ask the people that were teaching or leading those questions and then they can sort of come to their own process that makes sense for them. I think that's really beautiful, the gift in that role that you have. I'm recognizing we're coming to a close of our conversation. So I wondered if there was sort of any, either a, a particular story that comes to mind, uh, maybe one that you shared in the book or not, about sort of the benefit or a, like a sweet moment in palliative or just anything else you think um, my listeners might want to be thinking about in these reflections of, sort of life and medicine and these these times of having conversations about what it means to have a good life. Any closing sort of ah ahas or stories you'd like to share?
0: Well, one thing that I want to talk about, which may sound atypical, is that I think a lot of people are afraid of seeing a palliative medicine physician because there's this idea that if you are seeing palliative medicine, that you can't get other types of therapy. And I really want to dispel that notion for the audience that so much of what I do in palliative care is working closely with other teams. So if, for example, a cardiologist has sent somebody with really bad heart failure to see me, I'm really there to help their life to feel comfortable and as free of suffering, physical and emotional as possible. And I'm also there to supplement or to bring a new lens to the conversations they're having with themselves and their families about the type of life they want to live and what quality of life would be unacceptable. And that way I can take those conversations to their Cardiologist or oncologist, and say, here's what I'm learning about this person. Based on this, what intervention should we really be offering? Or what things are so clearly not consistent with their goals that we should just, you know, put them to the side for now? And so it really is a team effort, and palliative medicine is a huge part of any medical team taking care of somebody with a serious illness. So we're not a team to be afraid of. The other thing I was going to share from the book um, is that there's two things actually. One, something that I learned in my first year out of my training when I was doing hospice care in South Los Angeles was that so many of the patients that I took care of who were people of color and um, and immigrants and people who didn't make a lot of money was that dying at home, while it sounds like the ideal for a lot of people who, are, who have kids who are family members who are working multiple jobs just to stay afloat or people who don't have the finances to hire a caregiver, that We really need to think about what, where the location of dying is that works best for them to give them a quality death. Because sometimes that's not at home. And I put that out there because I think a lot of us in medicine believe that dying at home means dying with dignity and that dying in the hospital strips people of dignity. But if you're dying in the hospital with us providing the best care to keep you free of suffering, that's different than dying in the hospital in the ICU with a tube coming out of every orifice and us doing CPR. And I really, I put that out there to listeners because I think sometimes people feel ashamed if their loved one died in the hospital. And I don't want you to feel ashamed about that. And when you think about where you want to die, If dying at home feels like too much, that is something you should talk about with your doctor so that we can make a plan that honors you. And that plan is not always part of this narrative that we have about dying at home being the best thing, if that's not feasible for you emotionally or financially. The last thing I will say is that as my, I am just, you know, what am I, eight years into my practice now? And something I have learned is the importance of humor in all of my encounters with patients. And I aim in every patient encounter to make the patient and the family laugh because I do believe there is something about, there's some levity to be found no matter how dire a situation A lot of the jokes come at my own expense, but one moment from the book, one moment with a patient that I'll never forget was a gentleman who I saw on a hospice home visit who had liver failure and who had a belly full of fluid called ascites that develops when somebody's liver is failing and I remember kind of doing an exam on him, and we were talking about, I believe, um getting an ultrasound to see if maybe taking out some of the fluid would help him feel better. And I said something to him about how we could also find out if it's a boy or a girl. And I just remember <laughs> how happy he was to have a moment like that and how happy, how close I felt to him that I could make a moment like that happen. And I think it makes us real and accessible as human beings when we are physicians in the room with patients and something that I teach my students and my, you know, the residents and the people around me is don't be afraid to be yourself within reason, obviously, But I think when you can show those moments of levity and humanity, that is actually truly one of the most important things that you can do for your patients when they're in moments of darkness. I love that
1: so much. And um, especially it's not just that you can show them your humanity, but you're also when you use humor, I think, um, along with all the other accompanying practices that you talked about. Showing them that you see them in their full humanity, not just them as disease, right? You're sort of seeing them in their full humanity and to share a, an intimate moment of laughter that way is, um, a really this opportunity to feel connected and to feel more full, fully human. And so I really appreciate that. I appreciate Absolutely. the wisdom that you shared about, too, about thinking about where's a good death and also just the important way to think about palliative as a part of our whole care. And really the the threads, even in these last sort of final things that you shared, I feel full pulls us back sort of full circle, which is we have to be to the degree that we can as explicit as we can in our curiosity, in our asking of our questions and asking for what we need. Um, because if we're not explicit about it, so much of that unsaid can keep us Um, might have us ending up feeling regret or guilt, as you mentioned, about outcomes not showing up the way you want. So love today your invitation for us to be thoughtful, to accompany with our full humanity um, in support, whether we're in a medical role or in a role of grief supporter. Such beauty and wisdom. Thank you so much for joining me today, y'all. One more shout out. You have to pick up That Good Night, Life and Medicine, in the 11th hour. Um, Sunita puri I'll drop the link in the show notes. Um, it's just a phenomenal book. Um, I've told so many of my friends already, and they can't borrow my copy because mine's all dog-eared and highlighted and sticky-noted. So get your own copy, y'all. Check it out. Thank you so much for this conversation, Sunita. It was an
0: absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Lisa.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.